This week on WealthTrack, we launch our Next Generation Investor Series with legendary value investor Bill Miller and his co-portfolio manager, Samantha McLemore. They've beaten the market for the last 10 years. Find out how next in a WealthTrack exclusive. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Today marks the launch of our 16th season on public television. To celebrate, we are introducing a new series on next-generation investors. We want you to meet the individuals that some top fund managers have chosen to manage money with them, for them, and possibly succeed them. It's a topic I've given a great deal of thought to for two reasons. One, the recognition that the investment horizon, even for people in retirement, can stretch into decades. For millennials such as my son, it could be 70 years or more. And second, in this era of passive index investing, a firm's culture, its independence of thought, investment discipline, and integrity are going to matter even more. As one of my heroes, Sir John Templeton, said, if you want to have a better performance than the crowd, you must do things differently from the crowd. And that frequently means to buy when others are despondently selling and sell when others are greedily buying which he said requires the greatest fortitude and pays the greatest reward. That approach takes a certain mindset and training, which is why for this WealthTrack exclusive, we have asked great investor Bill Miller to join us with his co-portfolio manager, Samantha McLemore. Bill is the founder, owner, and chief investment officer of Miller Value Partners, a firm he founded in 1999 while working at Leg Mason, but took over completely in 2017. Most of Miller's personal wealth is invested in the firm and its funds. Miller still holds the record for beating the S&P 500 for 15 consecutive years from 1991 to 2005 with the Leg Mason Capital Management Value Trust Fund. His flagship Miller Opportunity Trust Fund, which he created in 1999, has $1.5 billion in assets and has beaten the S&P cumulatively since the market's 2009 bottom, producing 20%-plus annualized returns versus the S&P's 17% returns. Helping him do that is Samantha McLemore, who has been co-portfolio manager of Miller Opportunity Trust since 2014 and assistant portfolio manager since 2008. McLemore joined Leg Mason right out of college in 2002 as an analyst after meeting Miller at a talk he gave at their alma mater, Washington and Lee University. She is also the sole manager of several other portfolios. Miller Value Funds is a new sponsor of Wealth Tracks, but they are here on their own obvious merits. And Miller has been a regular Wealth Track guest since the beginning. I began the interview by asking them why they think Opportunity Trust has done so well versus the market and other active managers since the market bottom in 2009. We are long-term investors. We're not trying to surf the market and figure out when it's going to go up and when it's going to go down. But maybe more importantly is that the financial crisis was so, um, I'd say, devastating to so many people, whether it was with housing prices going down 35 percent, peak to trough, and that's most people's biggest asset. The stock market went down 50 percent, peak to trough. And I think right. there was it, it made people, I would say, volatility uh, uh, phobic and, mm-hmm. um, and risk phobic. And so what that meant was that post the financial crisis, 2009 when the market bottomed, and, and literally since then up until today, um, people have been pulling money out of equities and putting them in bonds, even though stocks trade at 16 times next year's earnings and, and bonds trade at 50 times 
earnings and, and the, or the cash flows, and the cash flows don't grow. So the, 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 the core thing is that, that risk has been misperceived, and people have tended to overestimate real risk uh, and confuse real risk with perceived risk. And so part of what we've done in that entire 10-year period mm -hmm. is focus on where we could find a big difference between perceived risk and real risk. And I think that's what's, that's what's led to our uh, doing so well, right. because there's been that gap, and it's, right. a, it's a persistent gap. And Samantha, I know you've been talking to clients, you've been out giving speeches and everything about what you call the, the key to performance in your literature at the Miller Value Partners. Um, and it's the, the difference between fundamentals versus expectations. So explain to us what that means. Yeah, so we focus a lot on expectations, what expectations are priced into the stock. Uh, we also pay a lot of attention to fundamentals in right. terms of how's the company doing, how's the market doing, how's the underlying business doing. It's interesting that people pay so little attention to the former, though. So if you, the example that we like to use is Facebook. So Facebook is a company that we owned for a long time. Last year, I guess in March of 2018, uh, the Cambridge Analytica scandal hit. And it was on the headlines every day. You know, how bad this was, the privacy violations. And Bill and I were traveling in Europe. And uh, we were using this. The stock was down 20%, $100 billion off the market value. We looked into it. We didn't think, we couldn't see any evidence that from a fundamental basis, right. this could be justified. So despite that, as we were talking to people, we'd wake up every morning, it would be on the headlines, um, some new aspect of the scandal. And when we talked to prospects and clients, we couldn't find one person who thought it was good to buy. Uh, it was too uncertain, it was too risky, <laughs> it was unclear what would happen. Um, so no one was paying attention to you know, what's implied in the stock price and how much are you paying for the underlying business. Here's a company that's continuing to grow 25 to 30%, we thought sustainably, has an unassailable market position, and you could pay at the time about you know, the market price to earnings ratio. So this was a great opportunity, but people only wanted to focus on, uh, maybe it wasn't even fundamentals, it was more the headlines of right. this potential risk item. So that's kind of music to your ears, right? When, you, when, you're, when you're getting a lot of feedback, negative feedback from clients and from the market in general, does that make you want even you know, more convinced that your case is correct? <laughs> <laughs> yes, a lot of times it does when it seems like, uh, you know, what's priced into the stock or the perception right. or the sentiment out there is so negative, that makes it much more likely there's a mispricing. Bill, you said, you know, you're long-term value investors, and here we are in a very short-term oriented, actually growth-oriented market. Um, and so, do you, is there, is this like one of the biggest disconnects you've had possibly in your career between the way you view the market and the way investors are viewing the market? I, I, yeah, I think, I think the short-termism and the, and the uh, on the part of both individuals and institutions has created a, you know, a very significant gap in, in that. I mean, the banks, for example, the big banks, right. uh, which, which just which got their- Which you own several of them, which right? Just got Bank of their, America, JP Morgan Chase. Mm -hmm. Just got their CCAR stuff yesterday. Every one of them passed. Every one of them announced share repurchase of roughly 10%. Every one of them grew the dividend at least 10%. And they traded the largest discount to the market, I think, in the last 50 years. So that just makes no sense, right? Right. And so that, and that now they've, and they most of them gone down in the last 12 months, but that's fine by us because they can't keep shrinking the shares and growing the dividend and keep going, keep going down. <laughs> keep going down. Yeah. You, you've worked with Bill, I think, for, for around 17 years now. That's correct. But you took on portfolio management duties in 2008. We know what was happening in 2008. Everything was falling apart. And what are the kind of major lessons learned uh, from that, from the financial crisis and from that experience? 
So it was definitely trial by fire. And uh, we could spend all day going over the lessons from the financial crisis. So there were many lessons on many different levels just about um, the behavior of um, institutions and people. I think that was really interesting. We distinguished between different types of crises now in terms of when to play offense and defense. And on a micro level, we also made changes um, in terms of portfolio and when we get more um, offensive and, mm -hmm. and buy stocks when they're down versus when we don't. So uh, many different changes. Right. Because I would asked Bill this in previous interviews as well. And, uh, and I guess my my real question is, when the market is going against you for a prolonged period of time, Bill, you know, did you ever reach a point where you just said, you know something, I don't know what's going on here, and, and we just, we just got to liquidate, we just got to get out? Is, I mean, how do, you, you know, how do you cope with situations like that? I think, I think when those kind of situations, well, an interesting one didn't, didn't last that long, but was even almost as dramatic, was last fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. So the market, right. the market went down 20% And you the were down 26.6% at Opportunity Trust. Yeah, and we, right. were, we were ahead of the market by, I don't know, six or 700 basis points, and we ended up behind the market by five or 600 basis points after that decline. Mm -hmm. But what was so interesting to me about that was that there was no evidence whatsoever to support a market decline like that, and especially the, the decline in December, which was the worst December since 1931. Wow. And that, if you think about that, we've had a lot of Decembers since 1931. The 1931 right. was, the, was the depths, the, the Great Depression was, hadn't quite bottomed, but it was, it was headed there. And there was a real reason for the market to be down a lot then. But if you think about it, even more dramatically, then he's like, wait a minute, December of last year, the market was down more than it was December of 1941 when Pearl Harbor was bombed. That right. wasn't exactly a, 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 an event that people foresaw. And we got into war, and this was worse. And there was nothing going on whatsoever. So one of the things that, that we, we thought about with respect to the financial crisis was that when the market kept going down and our stocks were going down, what also has happened was they were missing numbers and things were getting worse fundamentally mm -hmm. in the economy. And then in 2011, for example, 2000 and early 2012, the market went down a lot, but our companies were doing fine. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big distinction is that from the fundamental standpoint, if we're not seeing deterioration in our companies while the market's worried about something, usually that gives us greater conviction. Right. So, and, and that's a question because I just read the most recent Morningstar report. They, the current analyst is not a big fan of Opportunity Trust. And it's nothing to do with performance, but mm -hmm. what it is is that the criticism is volatility. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do you respond to the criticisms that, you know, Opportunity Trust is just too volatile uh, to invest with, to invest in? Yeah, I, I, th I find that uh, in, in one sense understandable because people hate volatility. Right. On the oh, other well, they hate downside volatility. Let's yeah, like exactly, exactly that right. They, they, hate, they hate downside right. volatility. But the other, the other part of it is that for actual investors, people who would like invest dollar cost average, which retail people should be doing. Right. That's the perfect way. That's the kind of fund that you want because you'll buy more shares when they're, more shares when they're down and less when they're up. And if the fund has a long-term record of beating the market, which opportunities got a 20-year record of beating the market, right. that gives you higher rates of return. And I think also then I, I, I quote Samantha that um, volatility is in this market. Right. Volatility is the price you pay for you performance. You pay for performance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so how do you handle that, Samantha? I mean, when, when, you, when you've got a, a quarter like you did uh, in the last quarter of, of 2018. I mean, how, you know, kind of how do you, you know, kind of keep your cool and your sense of purpose and your focus and your discipline? During those times when the fundamentals really looked 
and appear to be intact, that's when I get really excited. And you know, I think it's our duty to talk to our clients, talk to our shareholders, um, tell them about the opportunity that exists. But you know, in those big pullbacks where you can buy the companies so much cheaper and we're closer to the fundamentals, we know what's going on at the companies, um, that's not when it gets difficult to keep your conviction. You know, that's when it may be difficult to keep your assets. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but there are great buying opportunities during those times. You so, know, the, the classic example, which I'll never, I don't think I've mentioned on your show before, but I think it's remarkable. So there's a very large Fortune 100 company mm -hmm. that uh, had looked to hire us back when I was at, at Leg Mason to manage a billion dollar account for them. You and can't name names? I would better not. <laughs> okay. Names, but given what, what I tell, I'm going to tell the story. <laughs> so, uh, so, um, but we'd, we'd been in several finals and we weren't, weren't selected. And then, of course, our numbers were, that was during that 15 year streak where everything was. Right. So finally. You no, know, when you were beating the market, the only one who still has, right. Yeah. So the, 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 the um, the chief investment officer uh, finally called. He says, look, we're in a search for a large cap value manager and, uh, and you're the only one in the, in the, in the running. You're, there, there's no other finalist except for you guys. And we know you well, <laughs> but we want to come by just one more time to the office just to kind of you know, refresh and meet right. the people again and stuff. And uh, he said, and then we'll, we'll get the whole thing done. So he comes along with a couple members of his team. And, and as he's getting ready to leave, he says, oh, um, he said, what, uh, what's the most recent stock you bought? And I said, Home Depot. And he's like, what? I said, Home Depot. He's like, Home Depot is like at a five-year low. Uh, it's getting its clock cleaned by Lowe's. This guy, Nardelli, that runs it is a, is a fool. And, and he's like, how could you buy it? And I said, uh, it trades at six times earnings. You got a 20% return on equity, you all this kind of stuff. And I said, I can, Nardelli's a good operator. And, uh, yeah. And uh, so finally, you know, he kind of shook his head and, and left. And then he called like two days later and said, I'm sorry, we can't put money with anybody who would buy Home Depot. And that, <laughs> so, we, we, so we're the only one in the search and we still didn't win it. You know, so. <laughs> how do you to collaborate? How, how do you make investment decisions at Opportunity Trust? I consider myself very lucky to be able to work for Bill. Couldn't be a better co and we both cover all of the companies in the portfolio. We go back and forth every day on any number of topics, whether it's the market, the companies. So um, you don't have a specific niche, for instance, or right, you're, you're covering all the same stuff. Right. She, do, she does the right. work and I take the credit. That's the way we divide the... <laughs> no. Yeah, that's that's called being intelligent. <laughs> that's really smart. Yeah. Bill is a prolific idea guy, so he comes up with tons of ideas and I spend a lot of my time uh, you know, chasing those down. I'm right. trying to keep up with Bill. Um, I come up with ideas too, but it I'm busy alone with all of his ideas. So we spend a lot of our time that way, but we both talk with our companies that we own. We both have our view on what the companies are worth. So have really, you any major differences over the years? I would say that we're, you're blaming each other for. We're much <laughs> more alike than we are different. I think yeah. that's how I became co with right. him on the portfolio. So um, you know, it's funny, it's kind of like I've had two different boxers, and if you were to ask me what dogs, and if you were to ask me what the differences are, they're much more alike than they are different uh -huh. in every way, but there are some, you know, smaller differences. So I would say, you know, our differences tend to be on a smaller magnitude. You know, he might be more comfortable with a bigger position size than me sometimes, um, which is why his accounts have sometimes beat mine because he'll mm -hmm. take sometimes. a big... <laughs> <Sometimes>. <laughs> uh, we were both buying Amazon in, in 
some of the accounts we managed on our own in 2014, uh -huh. and I knew that that was you know how he could beat me. But he was, and I knew it was a really good one. But he was comfortable, you know, with a bigger a little, position. With a bigger position size. Right. So, um, I would say, you know, maybe on the margin also. Um, I tend to gravitate towards long-term compounders or secular mm -hmm. winners, and um, and he likes those too. I mean, Amazon, he's you know, is right. his name, so I learned that from him. But, but, but more versus, of a free cash flow purist, maybe uh -huh. I would say. Um, so that you are, or he is. He is, he is. right. Um, Okay. But but we both like both of those sorts of things. So again, right. I think there's more similarities than differences. I, th I think the main the main difference is that is that um, I have a much lower epistemic threshold than she does. Meaning uh, I don't need as much information to develop conviction. Mm -hmm. on so you'll stuff. go by your your gut will kick in at some point. Well, you not, say, I wouldn't say it's my gut. I just say right. the, the, the amount of reasons that that, that I need to see the I amount see. of is, is much less than not just her but most people. Right. And and, and in part, I think that's just because I've been doing it for forty years and yes. I, I can see the patterns. I think I can see the patterns maybe maybe more easily than others might. Mm -hmm. So what are you two most enthused about now at, in the Opportunity Trust portfolio, Samantha? Yeah, so there are a couple of different things. There's one little company called Tivity Health, which I think is really interesting here. Not many people have heard of it. Uh, they run the Silver Sneakers program, which some people are uh, mm. familiar with. And basically, they have a partnership with health plans on one side and then gyms, and they get paid to get um, people, particularly older people, to go to the gym, which is really good for their health. Oh, that's they're great. all over the social determinants of health. And then they purchased Nutrisystem, which is a dieting company, a food right. company, uh, in December of last year, I guess. Uh, so the day before the deal, the company, the combined companies had enterprise value of $2.9 billion, and today it's $1.9 billion. So it's down 35%. And I don't see any way that the combination of those businesses could be worth less. But what happened is they debt finance the deal, and they have over a billion dollars in debt. People hate leverage in this market. Mm -hmm. So the combined market caps are down you know, 70 plus percent. So they're generating a lot of free cash flow. There's already some evidence that uh, the combined entity is having success on some of the programs that they're rolling out. And so they're going to pay down that debt. They have 335 a share in free cash flow at least this year with a stock in 16, so 20 percent free cash flow yield. Um, so they'll pay down a lot of debt, and I expect that as they do pay down the debt, um, you know, that risk premium baked into the company will reverse. And I think that there's a good chance that they show even more success than is currently baked into the market, which would imply even greater upside. Right. So that's the kind of a situation. And again, even though the market is, that's an opportunity. The market is not recognizing it. And so you exactly. all can buy it when it's pretty valuable. So, Bill, you know, what are you enthused about in the the portfolios right now. You know, the, a lot of the stuff that we own has uh, has a series of issues. There might be litigation, uh, there might right. be problems with the debt like uh, like Samantha mentioned and disappointment. The, the one that, that I um, scratch my head over and uh, is uh, ADT, the home security mm -hmm. company. Mm -hmm. So they have a 35% share uh, in a highly fragmented market. Um, they were taken private by Apollo, the private equity firm. Mm -hmm. They bought a company called Protection One. They put the management of Protection One in charge of ADT. And Apollo tried to take them back, or took them back public, I guess, February of a year ago, I think it was. It was January 2018, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. 2018. And they filed the deal at 17 to 19. And I looked at it uh, briefly, and, and I was, ah, no, way too much. And so they finally got the deal done at 14. Mm -hmm. and, um, and now it's six. And so you have a company here which actually has the financial characteristics 
of like a Colgate, for example, which is it's very stable business. Mm -hmm. People rarely turn off their you know their, switch their security provider. The churn is due mainly is due mainly to people moving from one you know right. place to another. Um, it trades at six times this year's earnings and about five and a half times the next. It grows the revenues at faster than the food comes six seven percent a year. Um, it's got a really good management team, in, in my opinion, I think in, in her opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's got a double-digit free cash flow yield. And it's worth, at, on a very conservative basis, it's worth at least twice the current price. And we think that it'll be worth three times the current price within three years. Right. And it'll eventually, you know, people will eventually catch on to it and uh, it'll do fine. So if there's one investment that we should all own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio, Samantha, can you give us a, a choice? If I had to give one for a long-term diversified right. portfolio, uh, maybe Amazon or Facebook, which we own both of those mm -hmm. names, and I think that they have extremely, they've been under a little pressure lately with all the headlines around regulatory risk. Uh, a lot of times that more entrenches the incumbents than anything else, and they have completely dominant positions trading at, you know, attractive valuations. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I think that those would be core parts of a long-term portfolio. Well, when Bill was on last in, I think it was January of 2018, his one investment pick was Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone up since then. Uh, what's your view on Amazon? Clearly, you, you like it as well, right? Uh, the thing about Amazon, first of all, people have, I think most people actually get now uh, how great Jeff Bezos is as a CEO, right. what a visionary he is, how well he's done with stuff. But they still haven't thought clearly enough about Amazon, and I'll just give you. Uh, so I would say that one if I had to have one. All right. So you. And, right. But, so that, I, that would be it but again. But the thing that the thing that is remarkable to me about Amazon at the current nineteen hundred dollar price is their two smallest businesses, which are AWS, Amazon Web Services, mm -hmm. and the advertising business, which is only a few years old. Uh, web, uh, AWS is about ten years old, ten or eleven years old. Um, but AWS is the fastest growing enterprise company in the world, wow. the fastest to get to 20 billion of revenues. And um, it's growing 45% a year, and it's got 30% operating margins, and it's bigger than the next three companies combined in that, in that business. And AWS, and so if you put a multiple on AWS, if, it were, right. if Amazon were broken up as some people think is a good idea, you'd actually make probably a lot more money because then AWS would, would have a separate multiple and the advertising business would as well. And so if you give AWS the same multiple as Salesforce.com, it's growing faster, it's more dominant, mm -hmm. but it's the same basic economics. And you give the advertising business the same price to sales as Facebook or Google, those two businesses alone will be worth more than Amazon's current market cap in 36 months wow. on a private market basis. You get the whole global retail for free. Right. Very interesting <laughs> ideas. I'm glad you both concur <laughs> here in WealthTrack. And it's such a treat to have you both on. And Samantha McLemore, your first appearance on WealthTrack. I'm sure it will not be your last. So thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for putting up with Bill all these years <laughs> as well. And Bill Miller, it's always a treat to have you on. Great, so, Michelle, great to see you Thank again, you. too. Thank you. of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is look for firms where managers invest considerable sums alongside shareholders. How much money portfolio managers have invested in their own funds is a key criteria used by many 
to judge funds because significant skin in the game is seen as an important indicator of management commitment and responsibility. As Morningstar's mutual fund guru Russ Kinnell wrote in his Fund Spy column titled Why You Should Invest with Managers Who Eat Their Own Cooking, funds in which managers invested nothing had the lowest success rate and those in which a manager had more than one million invested had the highest success rate. Kinnell measured success in performance versus the fund's category and actual survivability. The SEC requires managers to disclose how much they invest in their own funds. You can find the information in a fund's statement of additional information in its prospectus, it might take some digging, or on the SEC's electronic data gathering analysis and retrieval database nicknamed EDGAR. Portfolio managers who invest alongside their shareholders have your interests at heart because they are their own interests. Well, next week, a seismic shift in the municipal bond market. Robert DeMella, award-winning portfolio manager and co-head of the Muni team at Mackay Shields, explains what's changed in his outlook and strategy. In this week's extra feature on WealthTrack.com, Miller discusses why Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have been given a significant boost by Facebook, and Macklemore recommends several books that have had a major influence on her investment approach. Please continue to reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter and follow us on our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Enjoy your weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.